I'll want you to keep it tuned right here. Up next, it's the McShank Podcast Boys, Ryan and Clayton, coming at you on KMPN in sunny Los Angeles. Hey, everybody. It is that time of year again. We're always very excited and very happy to bring you the McShank Podcast Top 10 of 2019. It's 2020. Sitting beside me is my friend, my co-host, and my friend again, Clayton Shank. Clayton, how are you? Don't forget your podcast wife. Oh, yes. (laughs) This is our 11th year, I think, our 11th calendar year of podcast matrimony, but it's actually our 12th year, I think, if I did my elementary school math right. Of actually reviewing movies. Yeah, because we had we had one that was lost. W- well, we now well we started we did 2008. That was our first year. We weren't actually recording until 2009, though I think. So it's like our oh, so the so we did the 08 in 08 for yeah. 07 movies. No, no, we, no? we we did the 09 for 08 movies. Okay, yeah, got so, it. So I think that was a, the infamous Dark Knight Milk Swip Swip Swap <laughs> that right. The, I contend I the revisionist history. I contend the audio was lost forever. So no, who's to say what actually happened that time? Well, my my MP3 file of the podcast I think mm. can speak pretty closely to mm. it. Do you have a? Do you really do though? Do you really? Do I really have that? Oh yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. But uh, yes, I'm very happy to be back here for our annual top 10 films of the year countdown. And this is actually the most epic day of podcasting mm-hmm. we are ever, we have ever tried yeah. to pull off. So we're coming at you with our normal top 10 list of the year. But then we have a part two. We have an Empire Strikes Back Ooh. of today where we take on our most ambitious task yet, the top 10 films of the decade. And Ryan... I'm terrified. I am too. I, I mean, I have it here. I have my list. I was. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to it. But the the, it's a lot. It turns out that to be able to culminate an entire ten years of art into to one commit, list to commit to ten tricky films. Yeah, that will live forever in podcast stone. Yeah. And it can't be changed at all. It ever, can't be changed ever. No. In, and we, and ever. we do this to ourselves by committing it to audio so that it can't be changed. That is if a, we just had it in writing, maybe it was somewhere. We could change it no matter what. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Sure. Dark Knight, number one, 2008. Who cares? <laughs> Podcasts are not written in pencil, Mark. They're written in ink. Okay. All right. <laughs> Calm down. Calm down, Rooney Mara. <laughs> but let's go to the task at hand here because this, we were just discussing it before the mic's came on went hot went live this was a good year it did i didn't think it was going to be a good year until maybe the september october some months and i had heard like just other people talking and discussing the year saying that it was one of if not the best year of the decade so i don't know if i that would be an interesting conversation would be in and of itself uh yeah i remember 13 being a good year 10 especially was a great year first year year of the decade yeah. yeah but i mean Maybe because I think that there's a lot of people that really love a certain film that might be on our lists, may not be as high potentially uh, as it is, but there's a certain film I think that is buoying the 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 year mm-hmm. for it um, in in its favor, I should say. Right. But, um, but generally, I think overall there's a lot of good stuff. I actually, and the reason that I say that is because I had a hard time narrowing down like i have a few things that i feel like normally would be on there or when i left them went oh yeah this is definitely going to be on my list so i thought it was kind of tough to jam 10 movies into these slots i have like maybe 12 or 13 i feel like that were probably worthy 
Yeah, the number, more worthy than maybe in other years. The number eleven movie is about five or six movies deep for me this mm-hmm. year, and every uh, every every slathering of red ink to cross out another movie that would have normally been in the top ten was pretty excruciating. It was so it was definitely a painful. There were some painful cuts that I hope don't come back to haunt me. In, I'm sure you're going to mention some movies that. I am just going to be gobsmacked that I found a way to leave off the list. And movies that would be guaranteed I would talk about them in detail on any one of these years. Right. But there were in the end there were just 10 other films I thought deserved it more. That's just that's just the way that it goes. With the cookie crumbles. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's get into I think it. We should. We got a long day ahead of us. Let's stretch it out a little bit. Let's maybe uh, let's get it going. Pilates. Yeah. <laughs> the last uh, last year of the previous decade. Let's get into let's it. Let's get into it. So my number ten is Honey Boy. Hmm. Yeah. It's a uh, it's a gritty autobiographical look at Shia LaBeouf's childhood and his early career. Uh, I did not realize that going in and realize it only about halfway through the 90-ish minute or so movie. And my wife did know that and uh, will not let me live it down. <laughs> so uh, LaBeouf, basically, he like wrote the screenplay after he was arrested for public intoxication, which they reference in the movie. And he sort of discovered that he kind of had PTSD from all of the abuse and just mental and physical that his father put him through. And he actually plays his father in the movie and presumably as a way, I guess, to try to understand the decisions that his father made and as a way to sort of, I think, bring charisma, I think, to the character a little bit. But this is by far one of the finest acted movies of the year. It's got a great ensemble uh, Otis, the character who's basically the avatar for Shia, uh, as an adult, he's played by Lucas Hedges and is just fantastic. And Lucas Hedges just cannot he, he, be a part he, of he any needs, comedies. He needs, at all. No, 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 no. He's he said was a beautiful boy. Yeah. But, or no, no, it wasn't beautiful boy. It was the Dennis other one. Back. It was uh, it was Boy Erased. Oh, Boy Erased. Yeah, Boy Erased. Manchester by the Sea. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, the, this kid is is grief central. Yeah. And but but he actually. The one I think who sort of stands out the most, like Shia is, of course, great, but I think he's great all the time. Young Shia, young Otis in this movie is played by this kid named Noah Jupe. Jupe? Jupe? And I think, honestly, he puts forward one of the best child actor performances Shupa, Jupe. <laughs> in, a, in a while. Oh, fuck me. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> it's okay. He is, uh, but he's able to, like, he, he sort of holds his own with Shia and his scenes because they do a lot of their scenes, basically all of them together. And. It's a film that's very cathartic as it unfolds. You could definitely see that coming through, that Shia is working through something both as the character of his father and writing the film as well. It's a weird feeling, seeing that that feeling on screen, seeing that emotion come through. It's very strange. But he's dealt with so much in his life and in his career. It really should come as a shock to no one that he's ended up where he is, which is sort of this quasi performance artist sort of thing but i think he just he crushes in most things that he does but he's so brilliant in this role it's so easy to forget how great and how talented he is when he's given something meaningful and i think we can now add writer to that list as well yeah so um number 10 honey boy yeah one of the two or three movies from the year that i most regret i did not end up making time for so i look forward to getting around to honey boy and as i'm sure shia labeouf would tell me just do it 
work. <laughs> That's right. Don't don't think about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good pick. I look forward to getting around to it. All right. What you got? Number 10. My number 10, it strangely snuck in at the 11th hour, so I'm not sure how that works. My number 10 at the 11th hour. All right. But Come it is board. the French animated drama, I Lost My Body, from director Jeremy... Let's see. Jeremy Clapin. It's a, it's a French name. Some, somebody will correct me. I'm Clapin, sure. Clapin, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was picked up and distributed by Netflix. You can watch it on Netflix now. It's a very strange experience. It is about a severed hand that magically comes to life and goes on a dangerous, I, I guess, hmm. for a hand adventure, okay. seeking out its original owner who lost it in a bloody woodworking accident. Oh my God, this is the most French <laughs> film I think ever. <laughs> have you heard of this movie? I have not, no. Oh, okay. it's, 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 it's fantastic. Uh, so what sounds like it could be a darkly comedic setup, we've, we've seen movies that feature severed limbs in the past, like I'm thinking... Well, even even corpses, you know, like uh, the the Daniel Radcliffe one. Uh, I forgot. I'm blanking on the name now. Yeah. Uh, Swiss Army Man. Yes. As well as like Idle Hands way back in the day, Devin Sawa. Just like this kind of thing has been tackled before, yeah. but never in such a refreshingly mature way. So what could be played for laughs? It's actually played fairly straight, as the hand basically makes its way from point A to point B. Point B being its original owner as if it's led by its own mystical sense of yearning. <laughs> the film, it's a, yeah, it's a refreshingly adult film. It's very melancholy. And the director takes this non-linear flashback structure where he's cutting between the hand and also the, uh, the life of Nafel, who is the boy who lost it. We get a sense of how important just his hand has been in some of the crucial moments of, of the boy's life, from his parents' death and a car accident... Not, no spoiler there, it happens pretty early on, to the elaborate gifts built by this hand when he's courting his first love, Gabrielle. And it's just also beautifully and touchingly animated with a sharp script and an impeccable sound design to go along with it. Like Everything that, I mean, I'm sure your cousin must have worked on it. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like It's just everything is so sharp and it just brings this immediate sense of verisimilitude to what you're watching just, just from the sound alone. Um, and if you thought you'd seen some great action scenes this year, just wait until you see a severed hand squaring off against pigeons and subway rats. <laughs> it's a, it's a, the, the blocking and the, uh, the ins and outs are unconventional, to say the least. Uh, there's, there's an ingenuity here that, when combined with the unconventional subject matter, I just found to be irresistible. It, it ends a touch more ambiguous than I would have preferred, which is kind of weird because I, I usually favor the opposite approach and to leave you with a little more questions and if anything, but I kind of want a little more closure here than it gave me, but I guess I'm just fine with how it resolves. But yeah, I'm smitten with, I lost my body. (laughs) So, so uh, seek it out. If you're looking for uh, some mature, uh, beautifully animated stuff. How did the hand, how did the hand end up in a situation where it needed to find its body? How did it get that separated from the body. So Is basically, so basically, the hand was just in like some coroner's office in a refrigerator after it had been, you know, the hand had been cut off. The kid had been brought to the hospital. That that's not really elaborated on, but okay. we pick up with the hand in literally a medical refrigerator in a coroner's office, and it Got just it. kind of magically gains uh, sentience. Yeah, cognition, and we just accept it, and we accept that it knows where it's going without eyes, <laughs> and we just follow it because right. it's. 
so compellingly done. 81 minutes? I can get on board with that. It's on Netflix, right? It is on Netflix. Yeah. yeah. All right. Interesting. Well, yeah, I, I, I uh, have zero animated movies on my list this year so yeah and um, i tip and i typically don't have any yeah. so i was happy to squeeze one in all right well my number nine is called another one you can find streaming now is called the farewell uh it's a very uh, tender loving film about family uh and like eastern methodology versus west methodology for sure um it's a movie starring aquafina directed by lulu wang and aquafina gives a great great performance in this film she's an artist in new york city who's going through um she's going through life basically trying to survive as sort of that sort of is her main niche as her characters and most of these films of like i don't have it all together and i'm gonna try to figure out a way to get it together uh she finds out that her grandmother nai nai has contracted a life-threatening disease as and has been only given a few months to live so her family together contrives a wedding as an excuse to bring all the family together to sort of say, quote, farewell. Um, apparently, this is a very prevalent thing in Asian culture. Yes. And as the movie explains, it's also based on the story of the director's family struggle as well. So she had her own Nai Nai that this is drawing off of real life experiences that she would have had, which is, I mean, it's already foreign in its in its own way, just because of the the China aspect. And China is so far away from us in terms of culture and you know just distance in general. But to basically just lie and cover up and try to essentially give your loved ones their final have them have their final days. It's beautiful in a way, but it's also a little seems a little bit strange. And so those things when you're watching them your version on the screen is Aquafina because she's going through the, all these same feelings. Like we need to tell her, like we need to, you know, we can't lie to her anymore. And the sort of like a sin of omission or a sin of commission sort of situation. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very, it's a touching story. As I mentioned, it's like the, the woman who plays Nai Nai is a woman named Xu Zhen Zhao. And this was her first acting role. And if I can submit probably my biggest snub in the best supporting actress category of the Oscars this year. Yeah. I think it shows that it's her first time, but not in a bad way. Because you just she is like a grandmother. She plays the story as if she's just a grandmother and not someone who is acting as a grandmother. And I think that there's an important distinction there because you it is incredibly believable her performance, even though it's in a different language, and she is the one person in the entire movie who has no idea what is actually going on, but she does it in such a convincing manner that I don't think any other actual quote actor could have captured. It's almost as if like the filmmakers are almost playing a trick on her and didn't tell her they were actually like filming a movie. <laughs> and <laughs> she becomes, and because also that they put a lot on her, like she needs to be the emotional center of this movie and her final frame on screen is just incredibly touching. And it was one of my favorite performances of the year. And we saw it in here at home. And it was like, I still really, it really was very affecting when I saw it. Yeah, I'm on Team Aquafina. I am too. I, I, think, I think she's great. And what was so great about The Farewell, it didn't make my list, but it's probably one of the three or four movies vying for number 11. What was so great is after seeing her hilarious performance in Crazy Rich Asians, by far my favorite part of the movie, who knew she had these kind of emotional depths to draw from? I, I was completely sold on her first real dramatic turn. 
and I was actually pretty thrilled. I don't normally take the Golden Globes much into consideration, but she got a Golden Globe for that performance, and you know, of course, uh, she's nowhere to be found in, in Oscarville. But yeah. But yeah, no, she was great. I think she works. I look forward to seeing anything else she does in the future. And what's so interesting, you bring up the East versus West dynamic, where the central conundrum of this movie is, you know, do, do we tell the grandmother what's wrong with her? And like you said, in Asian culture, that is something that normally is experienced in the exact opposite way that we experience in the West. Uh, they would prefer not to tell them when they have something just so their last remaining time could be enjoyable and without concern. Whereas I think it's actually legal malfeasance here not to, tell, yeah, not to tell someone that they are cancer stricken or have any type of terminal illness. So just that alone was enlightening and worth stewing over. Well, and there's a, there's a great scene in the movie where she talks to her uncle and she kind of, they sort of have this heart to heart where Aquafina is basically saying, this is how we do it over in, in America, even though she was born in China, but then moved at a very young age. And her uncle, who never moved, said, no, that's just, the, that, that's just how we do it here. That's just how things happen. That's how things are. That's how you know, we take care of the family at the very end all the way through. And yeah, it was, it's very affecting and, and just and it gives you another point of view. And I hope that other people uh, will check it out and, and think about those differences. I'm on board with the farewell. Good pick. Thank you. Moving on to my number nine. Ooh. Ryan Johnson does Agatha Christie. Oh, oh, oh. A Ryan Johnson, Agatha Christie movie. A Ryan Johnson whodunit? A Ryan Johnson. Well, that's the funny thing. Is it's, it a whodunit? It's not really. It no. ki- kind of is, but it's also kind of not. So, oh, Dreamcast, Don Johnson, Jamie Lee Curtis, America's Ass, Chris Evans, yeah. Michael, I'm always latently terrifying <laughs> Shannon. Yeah, it's, it's scraggly. He's just always it's, never, he's always playing a character who you think has gone maybe one day over he should having a shower. He's, like, he's just a millimeter away from violence. Yes, <laughs> it's how he right. always plays on screen yeah. to me. Uh, What's the movie? Knives Out. Okay. Knives Out, yes. It's, like we were just saying, not so much a whodunit as kind of a how and why whodunit. The the actual mystery of the central murder is resolved fairly early on in the film, but it's the fallout and how a a patriarch played by Christopher Plummer, I think his name's Harlan Thromby, if I'm remembering Mm -hmm. right. That's correct. Yes, how his death impacts his conniving entitled family and particularly his meek caretaker played by Anna Darmas. That's really the real satisfaction to be found here in Johnson's hilarious and tightly wound clockwork original screenplay, which is actually nominated for the corresponding Oscar this year, thankfully. Now you may have noticed I neglected to mention a certain cast member, Oh, (laughs) a cast member. That's maybe the best thing to come along since the Popeye's chicken sandwich (laughs) private. eye. Benoit Blanc, oh, yeah. played by Mr. Daniel Craig. The KFC CSI <laughs> sleuth yeah. hired by a mysterious third party to investigate the murder and all of the familial chess pieces. Craig is a riot, and I would have been just fine if he had received that the rare uh, Oscar nod for an actor in a comedic performance, yeah. which I, I'm trying to think the last time that happened. Was it potential? I remember Steve Carell and Little Miss Sunshine got a lot of well, I Alan Arkin won. 
Oh, Al- Al- oh you're yeah. right. He, yeah, he yeah, won. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Because so, that was a big upset because I thought Eddie Murphy was going to win that year for Dream for Girls. For Dream Girls. Yeah. Right. But I feel like that is the time. That's sort of their de facto category to put somebody who is a, a comedic actor in. Right. It, it, they, it, uh, we'll put it in support. It just it, it drives me up a wall to no end that comedic performances just are not viewed on the same shelf as an, as an artful dramatic yeah. performance because there's so much skill and craft there but i digress there's mm-hmm. just there's just uh there's so much fun on offer in knives out warring factions of a belligerent family all telling white lies about their relationship with their father and in, in hopes of corralling in his inheritance there's a lot of conservative versus liberal bickering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember one highlight that I just loved that Johnson included was very early, early on in the film, and it was this plausible, very topical political debate that uh, that plays out. I'm guessing according to your average Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> where you know it's a real conversation that you can see happening and real points of view on both sides that just felt really authentic to me not necessarily taking sides in that particular instance, or although the end of the movie clearly, I think, takes a side. Uh, there's class politics, a theme that will actually be revisited later on in my list as well. Hey, it, me it, too. Was, it was kind of a big year for class politics. It was, it was. And it's the right year for it, I think. Right. The, the one thing all family members have in the Thromby family in common is their condescending attitude toward the help for the most yeah. part but it's it, but i it's, wanted you to be at the funeral but i was outvoted <laughs> but it's so casual like they they're not even aware of how condescending they are it's it's just it just woven into their dna it's the white privilegedness of the whole thing <laughs> right. it's like well yeah no i don't i don't realize how much of an asshole i actually sound like this because they're trying to sound so genuine and so nice yeah <laughs> like most great films, there is a great final shot. Oh, yeah. And I remember you texting me just after you saw this. I hadn't seen it yet. And in a matter of words, you basically said it was an all-time last shot. And it's pretty fucking spectacular. Yeah. I, I got to admit, it'd be a crime to give it away. It's still too fresh. I don't want to ruin it for anybody. Yep. But I'll just leave it at that. I, I We saw it twice, and I got giddy knowing that it was coming the second time. <laughs> I was like, okay, here it comes. It's just so yeah. brilliantly blocked with so yep. much... With so much meaning just below the surface. So this is like, this is on my list as well. Very good recap. Where do you have it on your list? Uh, number seven. Okay. So it was very close to where, where we were going to go. So I'll just mention a couple things with it. Yeah. But he worked for four years on The Last Jedi, Ryan Johnson, and basically banged this out in like a year. Writing, <laughs> directing, getting it all sorted out. It was out. clearly an itch he had to scratch. Once he got, I mean, he needed to do something on this level. And he, I went to a Q&A with him, and he said basically, once Daniel Craig was on board, then everybody else fell into place. So it was like, oh, well, Daniel Craig's doing it? Okay, well, Jamie Lee Curtis will do it. And then, oh, Chris Evans is in it, and oh, Daniel Craig, whatever. So that was pretty cool. But really more so than Star Wars, Ryan Johnson has now inadvertently locked himself into making only films about Benoit Blanc. Like, I don't make the rules. I'm sorry. But that's just how it has to happen now. I need there to be... Well, a sequel was just announced. I was reading it literally today Mm -hmm. that he's going to make a follow-up to Knives Out that will focus on the Craig character. So so then a couple things that I want to... uh, I want to bring up a couple of things on the internet. One of them said, what if the Watson to his homes was played by Kelly Marie Tran as like a <laughs> fuck you. Like, he, well, he, he absolutely needs something 
to shove back in, in the face of the movie yeah. going public. And then a great tweet that I saw that said, if J.J. Abrams directed the sequel to Knives Out, Anna de Armas' as Marta will find out that she's Harlan Thrombey's granddaughter. <laughs> <laughs> so it just that they're everybody's just having so much fun in the movie and it comes through. It's light. It's playful. It's a it's a how done it, like you said, or a what done it and not necessarily who done it. And Ryan Johnson shuts all of his critics up as if he needed to really. Well said, Knives, uh, Knives Out is my number nine and you're number seven. There we go. So you so, want to move on to your number... Eight. Are we on eight? Yeah, yeah, we're on eight. So my number eight is, I'm going to be honest, Clayton, I have a horror movie on my list. And not just one. Two. Ooh. I have two. Is this a new Ryan? I don't know. I, Are I, you battle-hardened enough? I think I just had... I had a, I just had a breakthrough. There were just a lot of them this year that I kind of wanted to see. Oh, when good horror comes along, it's so sweet. Yeah, and this was one of them, and it's a movie called Midsummer. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew you were going there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, and it's a weird feeling to be so confident that a movie is going to end up on your list as soon as you leave, even though I spent most of the time afterwards saying I never need to see this movie ever again. <laughs> Like the the amount of the amount of effort that I expended speaking with the, my wife and a couple of friends that I saw it with of saying like this movie I will never see again I will never watch this this is frightening and it is just disturbing but I knew that it was going to be on my list because of just how what that did to me or what the movie did to me I'm a changed man after seeing this film like <laughs> wow. it is like it's not uh, uh yeah it's a it it, it sort of is a Basically, Ari Aster, the director, made this movie after his girlfriend broke up with him. I which, didn't know that. Yeah, so it's like... Well, it's funny, because I, oh. I, I heard the movie referred to as the defining breakup movie of the decade. Which, yeah. It is, kind and of is. I feel so bad for his girlfriend watching this movie. If she ever did, his, ex- his ex-girlfriend, just you, being like... You never fuck over an artist. What did I do to make this I mean, this as, assuming she broke up with him, which sounds like it's the case. Yes. I... You never fuck over an artist. I don't care if they're a musician, yeah. a filmmaker. No, they're going to come back and get you. Maybe not by name, but they're going to they they're gonna get, get you. you. In the end, they will get you. So it turns out it ends up being a parable about toxic masculinity and gaslighting that eventually drives poor Florence Pugh into the arms of a borderline murderous cult. So, uh, And just like with his previous film, Hereditary, there's an unease about this film. Like In the first 10 minutes, there's a murder-suicide that really is kind of ingenious in a way if you're going to do it, but also the most horrifying thing I've maybe ever seen. Like I can still hear Florence Pugh's screams in my ears. Like, it's like Tony Collette's screams in Hereditary. Yeah, yes. Like, for a similar tragedy. You just, it's just so piercing and it just sinks into your soul. Like to think of a, to basically to have this and put that in your script and in your film, to put that way of killing somebody and killing yourself is just like your soul is just black and you're just a broken man, <laughs> but it's so affecting and it's so, so, so visually interesting. I mean, then just that imagery and just other imagery in it, violent wise, just the set pieces, every shot of it looks like it could be a postcard. Every shot looks like it could be in a, some sort of travel book. If you just take out all the other like murder, um, but I don't think I'll ever ever be able to shake that stuff as long as I live. It's unforgettable in every single way. And of course it belongs on the list. I mean, you know, I just, I, I try to think about my lists 
just as sort of like a grand design basically it makes you feel something one way or the other so these are films that are very affecting i feel like more often than not and uh midsummer is one of those movies yeah you know what's funny is i was more in the middle on midsummer i liked hereditary a little bit more in terms of just the the abject horror to be found in it and it definitely stuck with me more than this one did i mean i mean i, I still i give midsummer probably more of a lukewarm positive review i love that it's all set out in daylight in the most crystalline Mm -hmm. clear crisp blue skies there's nothing that's going to be coming out of the shadows or out of the corners to get you it's very well acted very well realized but that's the scariest stuff the scariest stuff is the things that you don't the things that you can see and they're they're right in front of you well you see it and you can't stop it yeah 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 Yeah. it's like a train that once it leaves the station only has one destination and see i i'm with you because i'm sort of the opposite i feel like this one had more horror elements mm. to me. I mean, hereditary yeah. was frightening also, mm. but I sort of felt like it went off the rails a little bit towards the end. I, I thought the first half was stronger than the second oh, it's, half. It's definitely a messy movie. But but I I still see in the corner of my eye Tony Collette <laughs> hanging from the corner of the oh, room. That's uh, yeah. th- that's the one that sticks with me. But. I mean, good job Ari Aster for, yeah. for, for <laughs> making these films back to back. So... Yeah, um, I, I thought th- there's a there's there's a central pivot point in this movie where something so so violent happens that you talk about the old people. Yes, yeah, I'm talking about the old people and old people in his movies are so fucking I terrifying. Know, right? I can't, I can't, yeah, I can't get around it. But there's something that happens like that's basically the pivot the pivot point of the movie. And what happens after that, I just had a little more trouble swallowing. But I can see where Aster is trying to work to justify all of it. So I'll definitely give him credit there. But the thing I just couldn't shake is earlier in the year, I saw the original Wicker Man for the first time. Oh. And holy shit, is that movie amazing. And Midsummer is just such an obvious love letter to the Wicker Man. It's just all over it in all of its... Mm -hmm. It's seeping through its pores how much it loves the Wicker Man. And I just... I could not get the Wicker Man out of my head because I think that movie does what Midsummer is doing just just a hundred times better in like half the time. But that being said, Midsummer again is a, I thought it was a very well realized effort, and you won't find me slandering it anywhere what, except, except for maybe except here. For, yeah, right here. Yeah, <laughs> we're in a safe place though. What's your number eight? Yeah. Well, first I want to say. Oh yeah. Th- there's a thesis controversy in the movie about one guy basically copying another person's thesis. Mm-hmm. You remember this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just have to say, I'm uh, not. I'm Team Josh on this one. Okay. And, uh, Christian was being a lazy dick. Yeah, so he gonna, really was. I'm just going to move on from there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in more ways than one, really. Yeah, yes. Frankly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. My number eight uh, is the movie on my list that is the most impossible to recommend. Uh, it is called The Nightingale. It is the follow-up from Jennifer Kent, whose Babadook I also love. I think I had it in somewhere in the middle of my 2014 list. The surface level way to describe the Nightingale is a rape revenge story at its core, which normally I'm not jumping out of my chair to see. I spit on your grave sort of yes, situation. Yes, yes. Yeah. But what this really explores so brazenly and why it's so worthy of admiration in so many ways is how it, t- it tackles the topics of sexual violence and the sins of British colonialism in an often untold and under-remarked corner of the world, the wilderness of Tasmania, Australia, 19th century to be specific. 
The film stars Asling Franciosi, who I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering her name, as Claire, a young Irish convict hellbent on revenge for the, the murders of her husband and infant daughter at the hand of a sadistic British commander. Uh, with the help of Billy, who is an indigenous tracker, whose name is... I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce okay. in, in, in hopes of <laughs> honoring him. <laughs> just I'm just going to let him be somewhere out there and not butcher his name. Uh, he's placed in her service along the way. So Claire ends up chasing her mark through the wilderness with the drive of an avenging, an avenging angel, but with the limitations of a frightened, ill-equipped woman who has never known murder, who's not violent and has no idea to how to, no idea how to navigate her treacherous surroundings. What really, I think, distinguishes the Nightingale, aside from just the lyricism and the, the quasi-myth-making of Jennifer Kent's approach, is just the utter messiness and moral complications of Claire's journey. It kind of reminded me, in a way, of Blue Ruin. Did you ever see that? No, I didn't. It's Jeremy Saunier's first film, and it's basically focused on a similar Avenger who basically has no practical knowledge of how to avenge, mm. <laughs> and the resulting story is as messy and uh, as that sounds. Um, so just kind of making it up as you go along. Ma- really. Yeah. You, just, yeah. You, you have the drive, but you don't have the means. So Claire's spiritual journey along the way just evolves in such interesting ways after her numerous confrontations with what we always like to call, I think the banality of evil as well as her own moral failings and questionable un- and questionable aggressions. There's this one unforgettable scene that, it's so cringy to watch just because it's so brutal, but it has her cornering one of the commander's men who was separated from the group, uh, whose culpability in the atrocity around her family is not at all well-defined. And in fact, this particular guy seemed to be the most resistant to it while it was happening. But she basically just kills him with hmm. the slowly, brutally, realistically... This is not Schwarzenegger. Stick around, you know. This is this is like this is not something that happens, and you just forget about it and move on. Uh, it's very difficult to watch, but also thought provoking because it makes you think about these charged and vague and contextual things like evil and righteousness in different ways. Uh, it's it's a flawed movie. I'm not always convinced by where some of it goes, but in very emotional, real and historical ways. It's, I think it's an important movie and I hope it doesn't really fade from the public consciousness anytime soon. And yeah, it's also artful as all hell. So the Nightingale is my number eight again, see it if you have the stomach only. Nice. Yeah. I remember you uh, invited me to go to the screening, the screening That's you had right. and I didn't get, I couldn't make it, but yeah, it sounded like you really, I think yeah. I ran into our mutual friend, Josh there as well. He, oh. he was brought by, I think someone else. In Colin the, probably. Colin. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I ran into Josh there oh, cool. and we were, we were similar, similarly scarred together. So, <laughs> well, as I mentioned, my, uh, number seven is mm-hmm. knives out. Right. So why don't we, we can move on to your number seven then. Great. My number seven is 1917. The, oh, that's my number six. So let's talk about let's it. Let's talk about it. Fantastic. It's uh, it's a gripping ride, and I think a technical masterpiece from uh, director Sam Mendes and cinematographer Roger Deakins, the legendary, mm. unimitable Roger Deakins. This guy just churns out the hits. I can't e- believe it. Every it's fucking year. Crazy. It's something better than, than what he did before. Mm-hmm. So much has really been said about the technique at work here. It's almost taking the, the children of men model with these multiple extended takes and spanning it out to make it look like it's been one continuous shot the entire film and other films that I think I've tried this 
more obscure kind of deep cut films, but this is the biggest unmass uh, grand production effort I think that's ever been made. Oh, definitely. Uh, and some of the, the bah humbug <laughs> critics out there have said that the slavish dedication to the technique has kind of detracted from the emotional resonance and that's shared with the characters and basically the overall connective tissue to the first world war. Uh, They've said the condensed nature of the events depicted kind of prize at the the logic of what's possible in this time span. And to that, I say nay. I say nay as well. In many ways, I, I think this is a new war classic, and it's definitely one of the best war films to come out this decade, without a doubt. Yeah, it bas- it somehow manages to do more, to, to, to go where the war film hasn't gone before. And we've had so many of them over the years, and they've always kind of felt similar in a way but this is able through that you call it a you could call it a gimmick but i don't think it is through this idea of these long shots and these very uh, you know it, through through that it's able to 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 do something better and make it rise above some of the other characters and or some of the other films in there right as a it's a storytelling device you know it's it's it can be written off as a gimmick by people who weren't really on board with it but mm-hmm. it's really kind of in to put it in a complimentary way and not a pejorative at all it's like it's almost like you're in a you know a video game you're like following the characters around yeah. things happen in real time you have to respond to it because there's nowhere to go the camera's not going to cut you're just there with them and I think Mendez and Deacons are both at the the top of their games at this one. It's got tension, it's got suspense in spades, and this refreshing kind of you-are-there sense of vulnerability to it that few films have been able to pull off this incessantly and successfully. The, The acting leads, Dean Charles Chapman and George McKay, I think do stellar work in a movie that is again it's it's kind of more about the journey than it is them as characters because you can't really get into them like you would traditional characters because of the technique at work here but because yeah you're so blown away by everything that's happening around them that it's tough to focus on the performance or tough to focus on what it is that they're doing as actors right and yeah so it, it it's good that they don't get lost that they're still able to hold their own in it but they're part of a greater thing that's happening. It's kind of a weird over. mix of a proactive and reactive performance because it's obviously proactive. I mean, the whole movie is their journey toward this destination to warn this other this other arm of the uh, the British army that they're basically walking into a slaughter. But then it's also them basically reacting to everything that gets thrown in front of them on the trip. So it's a kind of interesting little mix there. Uh, this movie's it's got that Sam Mendes poetic eye we've always come to expect. It's got a great death scene. Uh, the list goes on and on why I love this movie and score, great sco- score also. The My score mark. I was kind of your medium. I, I felt a little. I like I like Thomas Newman a lot. I, this one maybe was a little too bombastic for me at times, but some of the quieter thing, quieter things I appreciated more about it. Uh, Who's who of uh, talented British actors that mm-hmm. kind of come in. Give a little bit of taste, a little, a little sprinkling here and little there, delicious a little delicious bit, and then they just leave frame, and they're never seen again. Never seen again. Because... And also, we should talk about Andrew Scott because he's finally getting some run this year after being so great in Fleabag season two. Do you know who I'm talking about? I don't. Okay, so he was the first guy with the flares when he was talking about like, oh, you got to bring the gun back for uh, the flares. And oh, right. Okay. He has been the best actor in everything he's been, and he was in Sherlock. He was Moriarty in Sherlock, mm-hmm. the Benedict Cumberbatch show. He was the best part of the most recent season of Black Mirror. He's a, 
he's just a revelation in the new in season in Fleabag season two, and I've been on board for him for so long, and, and I'm so glad that now he's kicking ass, and everybody's kind of noticing just how great he is. Um, so yeah, if you check out more of his stuff, I think you'll really like it. But I think the 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 if this movie really brings in the idea of we've discussed before about cut relief, where you see something so crazy and if it's portrayed just in, in one shot or a long shot that you're kind of relieved when there's a cut, like, okay, okay, all right, fine. This movie doesn't give you that. It does not give you that at all. Like, no such luck. Maybe with one notable exception that they try to play off in terms of, uh, you know, the, the blow experienced by a particular character in mm-hmm. a moment where there's kind of like a blackout thing happening. Yeah, you kind of, well, how much time has really passed here? Right, that's but, the only time it really stops to breathe, but which, the only, which makes but sense. Not, not much after that, though. But the imagine also if you're Sam Mendes... And you've gone through your whole career. It's not his first war film, by the way. Jarhead. Forget that he made Jarhead. But came out when we were in college. I remember talking about it yeah. with you back then. Yeah. But like, I'm so glad that he and Roger Deakins found each other because imagine going from Conrad Hall to Roger Deakins over your entire career. Yeah. Like your he's worked. He's films. worked with the Giants. Just like, oh my gosh! Like this guy. I mean, I think he's talented in his own right, but he's definitely had been buoyed a lot by these cream of the crop cinematographers. Yeah. So yeah, I totally agree. Love nineteen seventy. The, the first world war has always been a strange war to think about, just in my own experience, just kind of reflecting on history because it it arrived at a right at the focus of this modern technological innovation that I think we now take for granted. It's the the first major conflict. We have detailed photos and and grainy videos of people still alive have possibly fuzzy memories of it if they were just in their you know infancy to five years old at the time maybe they still remember some of it uh there's way more people who have had family members that they've interacted with who went through the war and can attest to stories about it and i i like to think that this would be a great double bill with peter jackson's they shall not grow old which i still haven't seen i really wanted to check it out in the theater yeah yeah, so fantastic i mean both of these films bring to life what we now call the great war in in vivid technicolor in very different ways and honors the uh the brave men who senselessly gave their lives to it i mean the senselessness is its own conversation when you think about why the war was fought did it need to be fought all these things that that history has analyzed but mm-hmm. conversation for another day uh, yeah but i yeah i was pretty bowled over by this yeah movie. no it's a it's a stunning piece of filmmaking and uh that was one of the last few things on my list that I needed to see. And mm-hmm. it was like, I was already pretty much penciling it in. It was yeah. like, all right, well, I need to see this, this and this. Okay. But 1917 is like the major one. And I go, well, okay, it's probably going to be on the list. Like it's Sam Mendes for God's sake. Yeah. I was lucky enough to see it about a, a month before it came out. And the Q and a that followed this movie was one for the ages. Mendes was there. Deacons was there. Thomas mm. Newman was there. Both lead actors some more people behind the scenes. And one of the most interesting tidbits I got out of it was that because they were shooting this movie in these extended chunks, that it was almost like a Hitchcock movie where the whole movie was made in pre-production and the actual shooting of it was in some ways the the least challenging part about it because you just had to get all this stuff choreographed and one little thing just fucks up the entire 10-minute take or whatever it is. And because of the way it was shot, Mendes said that every day they would ship the dailies over to editor Lee Smith, who was assembling it and blending it in the way that you would have to do in this kind of a thing. And he said, because of that, 
when uh, the last day came up and the martini shot happened, they were essentially in a position to show the entire crew a rough cut of the movie. That's really great. And the next day, that's exactly what they did. Uh, so, I mean, imagine being on this project and then the next day after it culminates, you get to see a rough cut. That's pretty amazing. For those of us not in the industry, can you explain to us and just quickly tell us what's the martini shot? Martini shot is the last shot in the production of a movie. Okay. The director yeah. usually calls it out. Or you don't want to yeah. come. You don't want to come off here with our fans as being this Hollywood elite. <laughs> this, this sort of using this, <laughs> I'm, I'm throwing pr- around this terminology so cavalier, so flippantly. So, oh, the martini shot that everybody knows. Well, let me about, tell you about right? the sujet. The sujet. Okay. No. <laughs> now let's move on. We're never moving on. Um, What's your number six, Ryan? That was my number six. We talked about That's it. That's right. It was 1917. Got it. Um, should I just... What was your, what's your number six, then? Let's I'll, br- I'll, I'll, I'll breeze through my number six ahead, just yeah. because uh, I've been, uh, been unfortunately stealing your thunder the I know, last two you're times. I always there. one behind. My, uh, my number six is A Hidden Life. Okay, I don't have this on there. Okay. So, uh, I did want to check. I, this one I didn't check out. The latest from Terry. T-Mail? Yes, the most excited and... Honestly, the only movie I've seen of his since To the Wonder, which I think came out in 2011, which was the the high-end perfume commercial mm-hmm. masquerading mm-hmm. as a movie. And Allie Portman was in that one. She was, but you'd never remember it. Nope. <laughs> Malik's introspective and intimate camera here, and frankly, his, his normal kind of fragmented painterly compositions, I think are put to the best use here since The Tree of Life. It focuses on a conscientious objector living in the rural image of uh, rural village of Germany who refuses to enlist in Hitler's Third Reich and the eventual fallout amongst his fellow villagers and the resulting consequences with the German military. Contrasted against To the Wonder, which is, again, the last Malik film I actually saw because they all just seem to kind of be this ruminative meandering philosophical I don't know nothing at least you know Knight of Cups and there's another one in there somewhere I just really didn't have a big yeah, drive I, to see but nope. this movie focuses on Malik's usual topics of things like challenged faith but it's moored here to a surprising sense of urgency that actually has some striking parallels to modern day and this movie it's three hours long it concerns a, a non-household name residing in a foreign country 70 years ago. I don't expect most people have seen <laughs> it at that length. Most people wouldn't anyway, but if you can make it past what I like to call the super malicosity of the first hour, where you're getting a lot of sweeping camera movements, you're getting a lot of things about people going about their, their daily, their daily doings. Yeah. Uh, I Stuff think that you think <laughs> is going to matter at some point, but it's just yeah, like, it's, no, it's just sort just, of, it's, it's all it's building a thing. It's, it's all building yeah. a, 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 an idea for who these characters are. If you can make are. it past hour one, I think the, the film builds to actually a pretty sneakily emotional conclusion. It's definitely in the running for the most gorgeous production design of the year. And the way Malik gets around the language barrier is also pretty interesting. He'll, he'll sometimes start conversations in German from, when the camera is a little bit farther away, but then the language will kind of blend to English as it pushes Mm. in, gets closer, or maybe the background actors will be speaking German and the focus of the shot will be speaking English. Some kind of interesting tricks there. The film stars August Diehl, who played (laughs) Major Hellstrom for the Nazis in the famous bar standoff and Inglorious Bastards. Basically name any movie that this he is recognizable and he is a Nazi. He's like him and Daniel Bruhl just have the Nazi American films on lockdown. (laughs) You see any problem here? Yeah. They're meeting in a basement. (laughs) It just made me really smile to see him 
again in a World War II German context where he's actually getting his redemptions against the Nazis and good old Uncle Adolf. Yeah, and he's <laughs> he's he's refusing this time to fight. So yeah, good for him. Yeah, his redemption on screen, Hidden Life, is my number six. So my number five, and this is probably again one we're gonna probably come together on. Maybe I don't know, um, but the movie that essentially speaks to the experience of living in America in 2019 more than any other. And it was a movie that was made in Korea mm. and it's parasite. Mm. So there's only two types of people in Korea. Apparently the ones who can live in fancy houses and afford multiple employees at their houses. And those who have to scrounge and fold pizza boxes and get upset when a neighbor's Wi-Fi that you're stealing is cut off. <laughs> um, but this is just a, a truly just gripping experience that, within its runtime manages to run the gamut of genres. It's comedic. It is, it's got tension. There's horror, there's action. I mean, it's just everything like the title, really the title of the film too is perfect as it's the story of a down on its luck family, sort of slowly infiltrating an, an upper an upper crust family, mild spoilers. If you haven't seen parasite by now, what are you doing listening to this? Frankly, (laughs) um, but they, the family that they're infiltrating lives in a rich neighborhood, and they're posing as different members of the help around this particular house. Um, I don't want to give too much more of it away, but there is a very um, upstairs, downstairs, top and bottom uh, motif that goes on throughout the film and also within the film. Um, but its moodiness and beautiful shots are thanks in large part to one of our greatest living directors i think bong joon ho who is now rightfully getting his due in major hollywood circles for this film oh, after snowpiercer yeah the, Oak host, Joe, the host Oak, all that yeah, stuff yeah, like the, he's he, the, he's done so much but i think this is now everybody's going oh yeah this guy is really good he's one of the he's one of the best international filmmakers we have and yeah. south korea has a few of them uh yeah bong joon ho is is an unqualified master i think at this point the alamo draft house that just opened in los angeles had an exclusive beer called Bong Joon Hops. <laughs> and it was like... You know, the funny thing is I always, you know, I struggle with remembering how uh, to address him because with the South Korean name, that's always the last name you're supposed yeah. to address first. So I'm like, do I call him Ho or do I call him yeah. Bong? bong. Which, one. Either it's, one. It's, 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 either one's great, but it it's, might be, yeah, but it, it's Bong. I think it's exactly easier. Serious. It's just easier to go that way. But So Parasite was our, our latest Bong hit this year. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You got me on that one. Uh, but the the performances in this film are just are just wonderful, and it's great to kind of see the stars getting recognition here in the states. The cast won the SAG Award recently for the best ensemble cast, which well, is the first time an international film had ever won it. Well deserved, very well deserved. Um, but it really is amazing how well Bong can able was able to sort of capture the spirit of the haves and have nots, the top and bottom dynamic. This type of inequality is happening everywhere around the world, and and it's resonating with people like no other film has. And this is that film that I was sort of alluding to a little bit earlier that I think is propping a lot of people's years up. It's like, oh, this is the best year of the decade because people are going absolutely fucking crazy for this movie. Yeah, And it's great. It's rightfully wonderful. It is funny to see that Obama had this on his list of like 2019 movies that he really liked. And I just wonder, what does Barack Obama think when he watches a movie like Parasite? Like, does he see it in the same way that maybe someone in the middle class or the lower middle class would see it? Like, it would be interesting to to get an idea of, like, somebody who could afford to live in the house 
similar to the, the one that is in the movie mm-hmm. with all of these other things happening and how much the, our experiences would differ uh, watching the, 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 this movie unfold and to the, you know, the climax that comes up and everything that happens around it. It'd be interesting to see sort of the dynamic and how different your experience would be if you had money and if you don't. Um, right. So there's just so much to, to like in this movie. There's so much to take away from it. Uh, and I think it's a it's a, a great one. Parasite number five. Brilliant. I've got I've got nothing to add. It, it actually just missed my list. It's like one of the few fighting for for number eleven again. But uh, yeah, I'm completely on board. Parasite was a quite an enthralling experience. Uh, my number five is it's a micro budget movie from a first time director and featuring a roster of mostly unknown actors. It's called the Irishman. Oh, <laughs> there's been much written about uh, Scorsese's epic return to the gangster genre. And I doubt I'm going to be having much, many hot takes here, mm. but in a nutshell, the Irishman is kind of what happens after Henry Hill eats egg noodles and ketchup for another mm. 30 years. <laughs> uh, the first two acts of the movie seem like Scorsese is kind of taking us down these well-trodden paths that he's given us in the past. But when the third act hits, I think that's where we find the reason he made the film. The roster of talent here is is just a dream. De Niro, Pesci, Pacino. I'm even going to say Ray Romano. Harvey Keitel. Sure. Uh, Anna Paquin. It just kind of goes on, on and on. And it's really the, the requiem of the final third of this movie that distances it from something like Goodfellas and Casino. And I think would would squash all of the fears anybody would might have that was hesitant to see this, that it was just kind of him uh, repeating himself. Um, I thought that De Niro's restrained taciturn performance is probably the best thing he's done in a couple decades. Pacino's larger than life as Hoffa and perfectly calibrated for his sensibilities. This was a larger than life character and he, he gave it that sense of bombast. <laughs> Uh, Pesci is just otherworld good in this movie, though. And what's so different is he has gone from the funny how motor mouth that we're kind of used to seeing to this more subdued, calculating man of enormous stature in the world of this movie whose, whose gravitas just cuts through the air every time he opens his lips to say something. It's kind of a show-stopping thing because what he says is so terse, but it speaks so much volume at the same time. He doesn't need to be that bombastic to mm-hmm. try to get the respect because in Goodfellas, that's what he was trying to do is just trying to... He was be, trying to be made. Yeah, he was yeah. trying to be made. He was trying to he was trying to get respect from all these other people and he kind of had to, to, to show off a little bit. And in this movie, he's so much more subdued and so much more in control, but yet he still commands more respect, I think, than he would and then he obviously did in right fellas. right one so. of my one of my favorite touches in this movie just kind of reinforces my my feelings about why this movie starts out one way and ends in such a different way is we get these moments where like it's almost like the player specs of a mobster is thrown up on screen showing you know who they are what they mean to the crime world where they died when they died how they died and when it first happens it kind of just gets splashed on the screen in front of characters as they enter the frame. And it was kind of funny. I remember most of the audience laughing because there's this stylistic flourish you wouldn't normally expect in a Scorsese movie. But as the time, as the movie goes on, you start to look at this, this tactic in a different way. It starts to get very melancholy and 
you see just the ramifications and other pointlessness and senselessness of all this violence. And this same flourish just takes on an entirely new life where it becomes something to mourn as, as opposed to something to laugh at. Well, it's like all this, all, all the things that these guys are doing, all the stuff that they think is so important and in the time of the movie to just know that, oh, this person was killed by this person and this time. It was like, yeah, that didn't really, everything that you're thinking about doing and it kind of he feeds into the larger narrative where it's like, yeah, we're kind of all going to die, really. So whatever you do, it uh, kind of really doesn't matter in the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is Scorsese taking us on another sprawling, non-linear odyssey of hush-hush dinners, esoteric doublespeak, uh, brutal hits, estranged family members. I, one of my most cringeworthy expressions just in real life that I hear from people is, it is what it is. I, I hate that. But this movie Mm -hmm. found a way for me to see the beauty in it because whenever something is uttered on screen here where it just resembles, oh, well, it is what it is. It is what it is. You know, that... That is might be the phrase of the year for me in the movie year, and it it brought a sense of uh, beauty to it that I never otherwise found in the real world. How um, funny! Yeah, that's really I, uh, cool. Yeah, this was an epic, reflective film that I think is well suited for the elder statesman Scorsese that we currently have, who's now in his late seventies and still churning them out. And I'm proud to say I didn't leave the theater to piss once. Wow. Well, that's that's a quality in itself, I think, right there. That speaks to how great it is. Uh, it's just not on my list. We've had a couple of conversations about it. I have a harder time. Mm-hmm. I had a harder time with it. Um, I need to watch it again. I, I I don't know if I was if I wasn't in the right headspace when I saw it the first time. But um, you're talking about a hidden life being long. Well, Jesus Christ, this movie is. It's so funny because I didn't feel it, and that's the thing. And and so I think that. There are two camps of it. Yeah. I think, you know, you either you you are so engrossed with it that you don't mind the length. And I think something was taking me out of it. Uh, and so then I sort of get sort of snapped into the real world part of it. And I'm just like, oh, my God, this movie. OK, you think you go, OK, great. Now we've seen young Don Rickles. We should probably be wrapping up relatively soon. You're like, nope, there's like an extra hour and 45 minutes. You're like, OK, so <laughs> I, I've heard that there is that it does lend itself to multiple viewings because there's so much to take in the first time. I think that as you watch it more, you start to notice maybe some of the quieter moments and those yeah. sort of things start to affect you a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't mind watching it again just to, to really, I didn't get a chance to cause it's like five hours, but um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I'd like to give it another shot. I'm, I'm right. definitely not, out out on it but i'd like to uh to give it another chance but yeah uh, yeah yeah, yeah. I, i'd be curious to see what you what you do with a second a second take on it because i i think that there's the, the movie ends up justifying itself in ways that i wasn't anticipating and i think it is a an unexplored chapter of uh scorsese's gangster mythos that he's given us the last 30 40 years so irishman is my number five so my number four is the second horror movie on my list. Mm. If you want to call it horror, I guess it probably is. Um, but it's Us. Ah. Yeah. Uh, Jordan Peele, the director of, uh, writer of uh, Get Out, does it again with this other Twilight Zone inspired take on how the other half lives. Um, <laughs> and I was as I was thinking about it, sort of having the, the whole year as a template, 
it does share similar imagery and themes with Parasite, I would think. The visual of above ground and below ground, the haves and the have-nots, and trying to break into the into that side. The have-nots trying to, to break in. Um, and it kind of took over conversations I was having with people about movies there for a couple of weeks when it came out back in uh, March or April. Um, so many cool little Easter eggs that crop up the more times you see it. Um and I think it just, I mean, Jordan Peele, I don't think he's like the new master of horror, but I really like his high concept ideas that are sort of placed in the horror world. Oh, yeah. Um, Peele's on fire, man. He really is. And I think it's its a more, I, I think there's, there's a better use of your time to discuss the themes that the movie puts forth about life in America and income inequality. And instead of maybe just thinking about just how the idea of a tether would actually work, but that's just me, <laughs> right. I guess. I really i I like what it's doing and and the and the themes that it's positing, rather than just like, well, what happens when you go on vacation? What happens to your tether then? It's like, okay, we can sort of not really deal with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the final showdown between Adelaide, who's played by Lupita Nyong'o, and her tether is stunning. An absolutely wonderful use of music and camera work to create shadows. I was just blown away by that. It has the 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 motif throughout the film of uh, the I Got Five on It song, and mm-hmm. it uses the instrumental version in there. Very sharp strings as they're fighting with sharp objects, actually. Uh, and as I mentioned, the Pizza Nyong'o was already a star and an Oscar winner, but this shows that she can do pretty much everything well. The most egregious snub in the best actress category yeah. this year by a mile is Lupita Nyong'o. She is a tour de fucking force in this movie. Yeah, she already sort of came in as a long shot, uh, but I think if this movie came out probably in October or November, I think she probably so has a So early in the chance. year, that, God, the, the recency yeah. bias just yeah. snipes us every year. And it's odd because it's horror, so I feel like it would fit well there anyway, but she is menacing and haunting as uh, the tether and it manages to jump between between you know, hyper violent to funny to scary and thrilling and really all in the course of a few short minutes you get everything together i'm basically i'm i'm basically thinking about the first twist on the lake house with tim heidecker right. and his family uh, it's a really well crafted idea really great execution just in that scene because you're thinking that you're thinking one thing it twists you and then it twists you again later on. And then there's a third one that they sort of kind of throw away a little bit, which I feel like they think is the biggest one of them all. But uh, I think that some of the other ones are played a little bit more, uh, a, a little bit better. But it does, I really appreciate, I really like the Twilight Zone element of it, the Twilight Zone feeling. It actually uh, borrowed some of its imagery from a Twilight Zone episode, um, similar type of ideas. But I think that he did a really great job with it. And really making a film with... Um, mostly black actors uh, is really great as well. A lot of good representation there as well. Yeah. Um, so us, my number I, four, I, I was extremely torn on this movie cause I, I loved so much of it. And then I just could not follow other pieces of it. I love doppelganger movies. You can get some seriously creepy and thought provoking stuff in doppelganger movies. I'm thinking of Denny Villeneuve's enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal and thinking of, uh, Oh God, what's the other one? There's another great one that's just escaping me right now, but fascinating material to mine for horror. Love it. And I just could not get on board with some of the tonal shifts in the movie. Uh, the Tim Heidecker thing and Elizabeth Moss in the house, 
I thought it was hilarious, but I, I also it just jarred so much for me with the sense of tension that had been established and something that I think Get Out did so masterfully is I, I felt that tonal balance lock much more into a groove than I did here. Uh, I love the acting. I love the, the concept. Peel's imagination is just apparently boundless and I'll follow him anywhere. I think I also just had a little bit of trouble with where the movie ultimately went and just some of the questions it raises logistically. I, I got to give it another shot, you know, much like, kind of like you with the Irishman. Mm-hmm. I, I got to give it one more go around. Cause there was, there was a lot of stuff there. I, I think, I think that there's a lot of, yeah, there, there, there's a lot you can take, take away from it just as thematically and filmmaker wise. Don't get caught up in the details of it. Don't get yeah. caught up in the devil, you know, in the whole like. Well, that's the thing is, is, I found yeah, I found myself snagged on some of those details when I didn't want to be. Yeah, and, and I think it's just the way the material was presented. I, I couldn't I couldn't let go of it. So yeah, I'll give it another shot. Okay, all right, good. My number four is I have one every year, the little indie that could. Oh. I usually you're I, so elitist. I usually flag one every year. Martini La- shot. Last and... year it was the the micro budget minding the gap, which I found so profound. And this year, for the year of our Lord, 2019, it's a movie called Atlantics. Oh. Uh, it's another Netflix distributed movie, but it's actually n- not a Netflix produced movie. They just picked it up and they're distributing it. Uh, I follow this, this guy on Letterboxd who does a lot of really thoughtful reviews named Silent Dawn, and he had this to say about it. And I, I tried to figure out a way to sum it up myself, but I read this and it was so beautifully stated that I had to just quote it here. Quote, a film haunted by its own yearning for a better future. Mati Diop's debut feature floats between realism and ghostly transient spaces without a hitch and is packed with heavy, perfectly realized performances. It exists in a methodical, repetitive state of elemental grace and harsh ideas. End quote. Hmm. Exactly. That's exactly what I got from this movie. Yeah. Um, beautifully said, it unveils in the African city of Dakar with a spoken mix of French and West African dialects. Atlantic starts out as exploring these kind of working class concerns with the eye of almost like a documentarian would where it's, it's, there's also kind of a classist thing going on here. The people who have enough money to fund certain projects and the people who actually build the projects and the gulf between them and how people aren't getting compensated what they're due while the rich get richer. There's kind of a little bit of a theme like that going on. And then you have that foundation and then it slips very delicately delicately into this tale of forbidden love between the a commoner and a woman who's about to be trapped in a loveless arranged marriage. And then after that, the movie just becomes something else entirely, something that is arguably supernatural, but still strangely human in spite of it all. I really don't want to spoil too much, but it has this ethereal uh, haunting quality that is really difficult to shake. And it's anchored by one of the year's best scores and features a tragic romance reminiscent of, uh, I mean, it's, you could argue it's even Shakespearean. It's got a Romeo and Juliet kind of thing. And with all the revel, with all the revelations that have come and gone throughout the movie, it's the film in its final metamorphosis where it really takes shape and lets you know what it has on its mind in congealing and pressing on with these star-crossed lovers who meet very different fates but are also held sway by the same kind of liberating truth and i know i'm just like i'm just dancing around this because i don't want to really spoil it but Mm -hmm. i thought it cast quite a spell and it's absolutely worth seeking out and again it's 
it's called Atlantics. It's streaming on Netflix, and I would I would press you to see it because most people probably won't, and it deserves better. That's great. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the poster for it, and it is feel mm-hmm. that ethereal feel that you're talking about. I think I it comes through a little bit in the yeah. lighting on the poster and stuff like that. So unpredictable, tragic, romantic, some social commentary. It's got a lot going for it. Yeah, a lot of Netflix stuff this year. Uh, so do the Oscars. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe it's just it's just it's, it's growing. A trend. We're, we're, we're witnessing a, a kind of a turning point. Yeah, I think. Our, our lists are reflective of the <laughs> changes in in Hollywood. Um, well, uh, we're on to number three, if you can believe it, really. But my number three is a movie I know that we are 100 percent going to disagree on. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> well, by by all means, Captain. <laughs> well. This is the this is the funniest movie of the year, and maybe of the last few it, years. Is it? It I really I is. I don't even know what it is yet. You do know what it is. <laughs> no, I don't know what it is right now. Oh, it's book smart. <laughs> Proceed. Okay, it's a movie that is so much about the experience of being young, but also wow, number three. You you yeah, you really went. You, I really you, loved. You it. went for this one. Also, but it's relatable enough that I think that everyone except for Papa Shank over here can enjoy. <laughs> that is so false. The detractors are out there. You just don't care to That's look. That's true. No, I don't. <laughs> Star-making performances uh, from Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Devers. It, this is a movie that is directed by women, written by women, and centered around smart young women as well. Um, and I don't understand why, but this movie was shoved into the middle of summer by Annapurna Pictures for some ungodly reason, and it was just swallowed up by Marvel Mania. Like This was the summer that Avengers Endgame came out, the culmination of the biggest franchise in the history of cinema. And they're like, yeah, let's put our like $2 million movie. If that much in the middle of all that, let's give it a few advertisements. So I, it, it, nobody really saw it, I think. Um, but I did. Uh, is <laughs> I it, did too. Is it the same plot as super bad? Yes. But that's not a knock on it because that is a great comparison for it. It even stars Jonah Hill's real life sister, Beanie Feldstein. <laughs> no, no, the knock on it is it does tries to do the same thing, but much poorer. I don't agree. I disagree. <laughs> I think it's a I, I think it's a timeless story that can be told in multiple, a myriad of different ah, ways. Right. But I think it's got a lot of heart at its core. The two leads really carry the movie. Their chemistry is palpable the entire film. They're the guide through the wild and crazy final night of high school. Um, just thinking about the different uh, side characters, the different characters we, who maybe just have a couple of lines here and there. It, the the different Hollywood, or the Hollywood, the different high school personalities that you can think about, and people that are crazy and wild, and the jerks and the whatevers. Um, Everybody kind of gets a turn, and everybody gets a turn to be funny. There's some great sight gags, some very funny, gross-out gags that I feel like they just need to be heard to be believed. I really love this movie. I think it's got so much heart. It's got, it's so funny, and it's just a, it's another interesting point of view. From a, you know, you don't really see these types of movies where the women and the girls are the ones who are doing the partying. It's always like, ooh, these like trashy guys who are going to 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 try to do these things. So. It was pretty refreshing in that sense, and it's funny and sweet and uh, book smart. It's my number three movie of the year, if you can believe it. Don't worry, Ryan. I'll extend, I'll extend you an olive branch Please. before I burn it down again. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Why Clayton Shank hates women. News at 11. <laughs> yes, yes. The, the, the misogyny is about to run rampant here. Um, there, act, there actually are some pockets of inspiration in this movie I did really like. 
Uh, I love there's a, an extended sequence at a, at a party that they're ultimately trying to get to where there's it's kind of a coming out party in many ways for both of them and we get to really experience them as full flesh characters for the first time at least that's kind of how it played for me there's a karaoke scene which uh where there is it Atlantis Morissette I think they're Mm -hmm. singing yeah yep and uh the Caitlin Deaver's character when she follows her her love interest uh into a pool for an extended scene was probably one of the the highlights of the movie year, just in terms of imagery. Yeah. That very I can, sweet. Very, uh, that, that I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, I love, I loved all of that. And there was definitely some things I thought were inspired, like the, the, uh, the hair acting as a ski mask when they're mm-hmm. trying to rob a taxi or, right. or a pizza delivery, the pizza guy, delivery guy, whatever it is. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Do you just get into a strange car? <laughs> you don't even know anything about right, it. Right. Then he pulls out a gun and he's yeah. like, see, I, I have, have a gun. Yeah. <laughs> you need to be more careful. Yeah, the, the the things that that I just I couldn't grab onto, I I felt like it was following the super bad template so so closely in some circumstances, and I think just just didn't feel as as lived in to me. The the very beginning is essentially a carbon copy of Superman, where one of them picks up another super bad super Superman <laughs> Superman. Dun, 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 yeah, yes. There's super- your rampant misogyny coming out right there. <laughs> yes, Superman. Yes, we love Superman. Red, white, and blue emphasis on the white. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. Of course, I'm gonna. I'm, R. I'm R. that's P. staying in. R.I.P. Christopher. Christopher. <laughs> R.I.P. American this, exceptionalism. This is all staying in. <laughs> uh, one of them literally picks up the other in in, in a car in front of the other one's house and there's kind of this uh, I mean it starts out in the same way it's I, it's kind of getting my, their personalities my a little main, bit I my main issue with the movie is I just found very little authenticity to grab onto here like I didn't feel like I was watching real characters for most of the movie I felt like I was kind of watching impressions of characters or exaggerated maybe caricatures is more the right word and it wasn't really until that last third where I thought um this was uh, Elizabeth, uh, director, director Olivia like Wilde. Olivia Wilde. Yeah. yeah, this was Olivia Wilde's movie, and I didn't feel like I got these more sketched out, full flesh characters until that that last third, for whatever reason. And something about the central conceit of the movie just really mystified me too. The fact that you, okay, yeah, I mean they're this kind of unit of two. They they march to their own wavelength. You know, they're they're playing, they're doing school the right way. They want to get into all the big schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and still, even in this, even in this age of social media, they can't find where a party is. <laughs> like, the, I, that, but I think that, that, the, that, that really bothered me. And I, I felt like it was, uh, but I think it's in there. I think the, I think, I think that the reason, the reasons for that are in the movie. Mm. Their phone dies because they end up watching porn on, in Jason Sudeikis's car, mm, which was a good scene. I yeah. Like that one. Yeah. And the fact that they are so unliked and so un everything that nobody's going to post the address to a party on an Instagram. It's like you sort of are in the know and these girls are very far outside uh, of, of I, being I know, in the know. I know. I that, think it's there. That's, I, that's what the movie wants us to think. But I think I, if you're I not, just, if you're I, either on board with it or yeah, you're not, I think, and I, I think that's, you I, just weren't. Unfortunately. So. Yeah. I, I just, I don't, not unfor- don't apologize for your wrong opinions. <laughs> it's totally fine. Well, I mean, your list is already tarnished for me, Ryan, but I mean, <laughs> we will gracefully march forward fair, as, fair as, enough. as we typically do, but all right. My objections are, I have been aired. They have been. And I, and I do, I, and I accept, them i disagree with them you just disagree profoundly book with them. smart is the number three movie of the year it's fucking hilarious so should see it. playing off that my number yeah. three is a movie i am absolutely 100 percent convinced that we will agree on okay 
Uncut Gems. Oh, oh, hey, Larry, you're a Jew again. All right, welcome back. <laughs> wow, it's like watching a manic ball of yarn unravel at 16 frames per second over the course of two hours. What How many a- frames? 16 frames. Really? Yeah. It's going to seem faster. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, right. it, it, it was like it was like watching, you know, a, a silent film with Charlie yeah. Chaplin play out where it's just like... Yeah, Everything is manic. happening so right. fast. And it's... I mean, is it, the, is, it, is it the cinematic equivalent of huffing into a paper bag? <laughs> Do we have paper bags here? Because I'm hyperventilating. I'm hyperventilating just thinking about this, yeah. this fucking movie. Uh, Sandler's much high performance fraught with that kind of manic energy we know he has but here just synthesized into such a movie of vision drive and purpose everything that happens is seemingly played out on a cosmic stage the the stakes and the the scope of this movie is just otherworldly it's probably going to go down as, as his most fascinating work if i had to say right now at this point in time and to get to the driving mythos behind his character, Howard Ratner, I think I'm going to quote the philosopher Michael Chirino, played by Tom Sizemore in Michael Mann's Heat. The action is the juice. Mm. That is what this character lives his life by. It's perfect. Damned family, damned consequences, the action is the juice. How you interpret that quote is, I think, how you determine if Sandler's character is redeemable or not. And the Safdie brothers, the brother tandem that directed and wrote the movie seem to think that he is redeemable i'm i'm not quite sure i follow him there yet but i'd be fascinated to hear them talk about it more i often found myself as i'm sure you did as we saw this together Mm -hmm. just slinking back in my chair just utterly slack-jawed at what i was witnessing it's like watching the most violent train wreck happen in slow motion it was fascinating there you're about to cross in the track you're about to cross in front of a freight train in the tracks and you're not sure if you're going to make it past it or get absolutely steamrolled by it you know that's his character just walks this tightrope throughout the film and i mentioned that it, it the stage feels like it's cosmic i think the the greatest achievement here by the safety brothers is a completely realized sense of time, place, and character. This jewel district in New York. Diamond it, district, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, you feel like you have literally stepped into another world with its own set of rules, its own characters, its own real characters. I never feel like I'm watching a construction or a, uh, a fabrication. Yeah, you feel like they just dropped this particular character into a real-life excitement that is happening all the time there that this is just like for us, we think of this as, Oh my God, this movie is super crazy. And for them, it's just like, Oh, that was just how it happened on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. You're grabbing money from here. You're taking money over here. You're making bets. You're, you're pawning, you're doing this. You're trying to make deals. You're trying to do all this stuff. Yeah. It's, I mean, and I think a lot of those, the diamond district seems like it has an energy all on its own. Thank you for clarifying. I've been yeah. to New York three times and I somehow just displayed my shattering ignorance for one of its districts. <laughs> but it's like, but, but, the, but it's so crazy because you would say the same thing about Manhattan as a city, as a ta- as, as, as a city in itself. But then there's this other smaller subset of it, which is just like, Oh no, you thought this had a lot of excitement. Go to this place. And you'll be just left behind. I mean, if you're walking slow on the on the wrong side of the street, you're going to get pushed over basically because yes. there's so much excitement and so much really just action. Um, well, before you go any further, I've made my executive decision. This is my number two movie of the year. Yeah. So um, let's get into it. Okay. So I 
I I'm going to start basically by going back a couple of years and basically let's wind the clock. Let's wind back. the clocks back. I knew that I wanted to see the, their previous film, Good Time, from when the trailer from the time that the trailer was released. It was like I like the look of it. I love the Iggy Pop vocals that are on it at the end. It looked like a great Robert Pattinson performance. And I saw it, lived up to my expectations. I can't remember if I had it on my list or if I saw it afterwards and knew it would be on my list. I can't remember. It was it was one of those like right at the wire sort of things. But the trailer for this film gave me a similar feeling. It was so good, so up my alley. I love sports gambling. You know, that whole th- that that whole yeah, that's action on it is to play out in movies very often. No, you what don't. What a fascinating world to explore. Um, and there was a sense, I was talking to people who had also seen the trailer, the main sense of it was just like, well, why can't this movie just be out now? Like, why do we have to wait? Like, just tell me that the trailer is happening. And we just came up with this whole idea of like, let's just have a trailer and just be like, hey, guess what? This movie's coming out tomorrow. Great. Mm-hmm. Cool. Great. Awesome. This is this will be amazing. But mm-hmm it it really moves you in a way that you've been rarely moved before in a movie mm-hmm. where the action is the juice. I couldn't have said it any, per, I couldn't have said it any better, but the, that pacing, neither could I, I had to rely yeah, on right, Tom Sizemore. Else. <laughs> Tom Sizemore of all and people. Whoever wrote heat. <laughs> yes. But like, but there is on its face, there is very little stereotypical quote action and quote. There isn't, manic gun battles there isn't lots of you know running and fighting and stuff like that there's a little bit of it you get a little bit of it but you still feel as exhilarated or more exhilarated than there would if you had a movie that had those things in them i mean the music the quick cutting the 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 character decisions the acting everything is just driving the film to where it needs to go and you it's sort of just taking you on a leash and just dragging you behind it yeah, frankly right. like you're yeah. just you're just hitting the pavement all along the way right. as they're just running from place to place like you're always slightly behind but <laughs> Sandler you'd mentioned is a revelation it's sort of as his collection of good performances in movies where he seems like he gives a shit um, yeah but really we discussed this whole thing I think the real breakout star there's two. Um, the one I want to talk about is Kevin Garnett. <laughs> KG. It takes, right. Hey, KG. This takes <laughs> place in 2012 and Garnett, who's playing himself, who has not aged a day. And since then really looks like he could just step right back into playing in the NBA. Now he's supposed to be what? 2011 ish or something like that. Well, it's 2012. 2012. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So that's, you know, and he retired a few years after that, but he totally holds his own in this movie. I think that he, you could, you've seen actor or you've seen athletes try to be actors before, whether they're in their own movie or whether they're just a side ancillary character. And it doesn't often work very well. They're very stilted. They're very wooden, but Kevin Garnett, maybe it's just because he is just playing himself is able to step in and just act really just as well alongside these Titans, like uh, Adam Sandler and Lakeith Stanfield as well, who also has had a very indelible mark. Uh, in this year too, yeah, this film and in Knives Out, but I think Garnett totally is believable, and it's sort of in that similar I, the, way, the way I discussed the woman who plays Nai Nai in The Farewell. Yeah. It's just like they're not an actor; they're just sort of playing a, a role. They're playing essentially what comes naturally to them, and it really shows. I mm-hmm. think, and the Safties can pretty much make whatever they want after this. They've really rocketed to near the top of directors with must see anything. This <laughs> yeah. is just like, give them whatever they want. This is a revelation. And this, yeah, something that the best thing was watching it with my wife. I saw, so we saw it again. I really wanted to see it again. I really wanted to see it with her after you and I had seen it. 
and knowing the beats of most people in the theater, like it was probably 98% people who had never seen it. Oh, that's a treat watching reactions. Oh my God. There was just, there was like slinking in the chair. Like you said, (laughs) there was like pulling the jacket up almost over your face. There was like hands over the mouth sort of thing. And just like, there's a, there's a, there's a specific moment near the end that really just punctuates and is a great treat if you know what's going on and nobody else does. So uh, I friggin' love Uncut Gems, and I went yeah. back and forth. The reason why I was saying the decision has been made is I really went back and forth with this and the other movie. The, for your number one For film. number one. I really, yeah, I wasn't sure. And who knows, maybe on a different day I'll think differently. But when I made yeah. it, and for now, it's number two. Before we cut off the, the Uncut Gems love, I, I want to put a finer bullet point on the cosmic angle of this. So the, oh, film, yeah. the film literally opens amongst mines in Africa. <laughs> yeah, it this, goes this, a long this, way. This this Adam Sandler, you know, quote unquote movie opens in the mines of Africa where the the cherished opal that is unearthed uh gets discovered and it just it sets this real tone of grand stakes and scale as if the entire universe is kind of encased in this one gem and all the trials, tribulations and shady dealings and the hand wringings that will accompany it on its lifespan uh, throughout the movie. And cutting from that to this trippy opening title sequence where this really, uh, where the score plays that really kind of hits on, I mean, I thought of 2001 for something. Mm -hmm. It really was very ethereal. Very ethereal, very ruminative kind of. And so we transition from this grand sense of the macro to literally Adam Sanders asshole. <laughs> his character's <laughs> right, right, asshole. His character's asshole. <laughs> yeah. Like it literally transitions to the monitor of a colonoscopy happening. And what a beautiful touch. Oh, you know, it really because was. and and also, funny enough, that's with one notable exception toward the end, the only time we'll see this character at peace throughout <laughs> the movie. <laughs> yes. But it really kind of uh, lends a uh, a very a very cheeky a very cheeky commentary about the the ass we're about to spend the next two hours with. Yeah. So bravo Safety brothers and Ryan, as you're always fun to say, this was a capital M movie. So certainly, certainly what's your number two, my number two, it's really part of a one, a one B situation, but okay. Maybe. But, so if you're feeling like you can do that, then I feel like I in the, yeah. have an idea of that in the spirit so. of podcast decorum. I've decided to keep the traditional ranking scheme. Okay. But, uh, just consider my protest on the record. My yeah. number two, Film of the year is the most riveting documentary and shamefully the only documentary I saw this year. So it wins by default, I guess, but it is Apollo 11. It came out very early in the year. I was extremely disappointed that it was uh, apparently forgotten about. Uh, It really is a documentary in the truest sense of the word. It's not representing a point of view. It's not taking these great formalistic leaps or just being an exercise and just crass polemics. It's, it really just wants to show you what happened on July 20th, 1969 and the weeks surrounding the historic first landing of the moon on the, the one of the greatest achievements in the history of mankind, allegedly. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. I'll show myself. Out. Oh, wow. Kubrick didn't shoot that shit in his basement. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess not. This I thought he did. I thought yeah. he did. But um, no, Todd Douglas Miller's film, it, it admirably shies away from any talking heads or a, kind of a reconstructive, reconstructed narrative. And it really just wants to show us a chronological timeline starting with the eve of the mission through the mission itself and up to a very surprisingly emotional coda 
that spends time with the three astronauts, Neil Armstrong, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, and the often forgot about Michael Collins as they take some much-needed R&R in quarantine. But the most thrilling part of this film is that the narrative is constructed entirely through restored and realized contemporaneous footage. We spend real quality time with the innumerable engineers and operators, mission control directors that actually guided this flight. The journalists outside, the exhilarated onlookers watching the launch itself, and of course just spending time with the astronauts themselves. It was, it was a very unique experience, at least uh, from my chair. It was, it was like having a personal experience kind of wrapped inside of a communal experience because I've heard testimonies, you know, even my own parents remembered when this happened. They told, me, they told me about what it was like, but this is the only real thing that's taken me, I think, right to that moment where I can live in the past and say, I have a reasonable experience of what this was like. Uh, watching um, the launch, every, every crack, sunbeaten smile outside that matches my own smile, at least, as the, the rocket just punctures a course through the blue sky. Uh, the theater experience... It probably can't be had now by most, but you actually feel the launch. You feel the explosion. It just explodes off the screen. It envelops you. It was quite in every pregnant second that we spend where that preempt uh, Armstrong's immortal words when they touch down on the uh, the chalky alien lunar surface. It What a sensory experience. What a movie. Uh, I loved Apollo 11, and even in its lean 90 minutes, it showed why movie theaters exist. Yeah, I mean, I I've heard nothing but great things. I haven't, mm-hmm. I unfortunately didn't get a chance to see it. I've always, I'm always way behind on documentaries. Like, me I too. Always, Normal, I yeah. always just like, if there's, it's for some reason I just always miss out on them, and then I see them later on, and I'm like, God, this movie's amazing. What the hell? Like, I didn't see like American Factory. Yeah, I didn't see any of the ones that were not. I didn't even see Won't You Be My Neighbor. Like, I, everybody saw that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this was year uh, last year, I guess. But yeah, it's two, like yeah. all the documentaries everybody sees. I just don't. I just yeah, don't this them. was just so up my alley, and it was it was thankfully like I was working at Universal, and it was playing at City Walk, so I just oh, had, I, I just cool. had to literally drive there, get off work a little bit early, and I, I sat through an incredible experience. All right, so the time has come. The time has come, Ryan. What is your number one film of the last year of this decade? I'm I'm actually we didn't even plan this, but I'm really glad you you mentioned 1969 because my number one movie is once upon a time in Hollywood. (laughs) And it's a movie that I made the biggest turnaround on in the shortest amount of time. I walked out of that screening the Thursday that it came out going, Hmm, not sure what that was about. (laughs) There's, there's there's some, there's, there was a little bit of that. And it was like, we were talking about it and we're like, well, why this? And why, why that? And I think it, it. I started to think about it more, and then we saw it again. The, the, we actually didn't give up our 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 tickets for this for this movie. We had it. We had bought tickets to go to the ArcLight Hollywood, and we didn't give up the tickets after the first night. We're like, let's give it another chance. So we saw it again Saturday night, ArcLight Hollywood at the Dome. Immediately went to Musso and Frank's afterwards, drank whiskey sours and ordered appetizers, and it like clicked something in it clicked. I think my expectations of it were one thing and it ended up being a different thing. And I think that maybe at first you go, it's a, it's a jarringly shockingly, Oh, this isn't what I thought it was. So it's bad rather than this is what it is. And it's good. Does that make sense? It definitely makes sense. So I, 
I, when I was telling people about it, I was like, listen, this is not what you think it is. And so I would try to couch that of like, I don't want you to make the same mistake that I did, but I don't know if it's for everyone. And I think that the, some of the stuff online and some of the reaction to, it, I think has generally been positive, but it hasn't been as overwhelmingly positive. I feel like as maybe some of his other films, um, I was sort of expecting like Inglorious Bastards in 1969 with the Manson angle yeah. and everything. And I guess in a roundabout way, I kind of got that in the end, but it doesn't have the frenetic energy and that, that, that quality that a Tarantino movie usually has. Um, it's a lot quieter. It's a lot more mellow. It's a lot more introspective. Yeah. That's what I enjoy the most about it. I yeah. thought it was a departure in that sense yeah. where it doesn't rely on the snappy dialogue or the hyper-realistic dialogue. And it just kind of gives you a couple characters to hang out with. Yeah. I mean, th- basically in a way that you, the way you described the Irishman, I would probably use th- similar ideas to describe this movie like it's a film about aging movie stars. It's made by aging movie stars. You would never know it. My God, Brad Pitt, Jesus. <laughs> like, I mean, Steve McQueen in the flesh. I mean, there is not a truer movie star on planet Earth, at least in the the American conscience right no. now. I mean, it all feels very personal. Like it's made by Tarantino, who also is getting older and can see the end of his career, his own self-inflicted thing that he said, I'm only going to make 10 movies. <laughs> but I think that he's feeling the pressure of, of aging and, and trying to work in Hollywood today and everything. And he grew up in LA and of course his famous attention to detail is relevant in this movie because it just feels like a love letter to that time. But what I love about it and in rewatching it multiple times since then, there's about 90 minutes in the middle of this movie that just takes place during an eight hour day. Like the <laughs> yeah. chunk of the movie is just Leo goes to work <laughs> And Brad Pitt drives around like that's it. Like, th- and then there's stuff that happens obviously within mm. that, but there's just a, it's just a day. Like it only like three or four days over the life of these characters. And so it, it, in a way I feel like it's good to know that going in. So you don't expect like the next thing to become, you know, you're not anticipating, Oh, this super extra thing is happening here. It's like, no, just, it's just chilling. It's just these guys and they're living their lives really. It's a, you know, it's a really day in the life, but I, we had discussed it briefly a little bit, but the idea that Quentin Tarantino could direct a horror movie, I think is I'm on totally on board with that now because there is a sequence in here where Brad Pitt's character is, is going to the house on the spawn movie ranch. Which might as well be on another planet. Yeah, really. And the tension, in the that tension sequence. in it, and the, I mean, he's using the. Uh, I'm going to use a fancy word. He's using the diegetic music <laughs> in the it, it, on the TV. God damn it! How dare you? I know to basically craft the the suspense of. Okay, you don't know what's back there. You don't know if there's a murderer waiting back there, or if the character he's trying to see is already dead, and you don't really know what's what's coming. And so I was totally on board with that, with with the idea that he can do this in this small little sequence. But I think that there's one other main thing that he does in it, and that's his portrayal of Sharon Tate in the movie. Uh, it's a revelation. I mean, he elevates her from a footnote in a mass murder to uh, a, a goofy, talented actor that she was. Uh, and I say actor because the word actress is nonsensical. <laughs> and imagine sort of what her life would have been. Very 2019 of you. Yeah, well, that was in the movie. Uh, and imagines <laughs> what her life would have been like had she not been killed that fateful August evening. 
I'm thinking about the sequence where she's in the theater watching, watching herself, herself. which is really herself. It's not like she's yeah. being digitally planted in the right. movie. Like she's actually watching the real Sharon Tate, which I think that is also does a great job of, of, of sort of marrying the two versions of this person. Like she was a real person. She is not just someone who was killed by Charles Manson. She was a person who had, who was full of life and was funny and was talented. And so the idea to not digitally replace her with Margot Robbie, I thought was a really inspired uh, way of that right, right. to do that. Um, but just in general, the whole film is just soaked in the sixties as only Tarantino can do. It's just a treat always to see so many people, so many great people just on top of their game, a masterclass, a great filmmaking. I mean, it went from, for me, it went from like, huh, I'm not sure where this one really ranks to this was what my wife and I did for our yearly Christmas card. So it just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that you shift. Pull, you, you did pull that off brilliantly. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was beautiful. But that shift from, I'm not sure to, this is now my number one movie of the year over a course of a couple days. I mean, and and over time as it's come out in the summertime, uh, it's something I did not expect. And mm. uh, so Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm. number one with a bullet. Right. So there's a couple of movies this year that I just did not know what to do with. The first one is Marriage Story, which I loved, but there was something nagging at me about it. And I think it was just how polished it was and for how accomplished the acting was and the writing. Something about it just seemed so stagey to me and it might have been a better theatrical production or something. So Marriage Story I love, but could not find a place on my list. And the other one is Once Upon a Time Ellipses in Hollywood. <laughs> and I went back and forth so much on what this movie is and what it means to me. And I honestly, I'm still wrestling with it because the first 80% of this movie, I think is one of Tarantino's absolutely best movies in the last decade, for sure. It's a different kind of movie. It's a chill out hangout movie focusing on a revered piece of subject matter close to his heart. The decline of the golden age of Hollywood like the best scene in the movie, my favorite, let me interrupt you really quick, yeah. is when the two of them are basically doing director's commentary for Leo's episode of FBI. Yes, yeah. Like, yeah. it's them, they, even just the part before then where they're just sitting down, they're getting ready, and it's the two of the culmination of this long day that they are coming, like, you think about all the things that had happened before then to both of them, and they both are coming together just to hang out, let's drink some beers, let's smoke a little bit. And let's just watch this show. And then, you know, you just hear Leo like, oh, yeah, that guy was a real piece of shit. That guy, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then the, the, hearing them comment and, and just that. So it's very it's very quiet and it's in its brilliance, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I the buddy aspect of this and the, uh, the the third leg of it, the take character, I was pretty fascinated by because if you have a, a cursory knowledge of of Hollywood history and famous 20th century murders, you know, on the page where this should be going and it gives the movie an underlying sense of tension that really rolls on throughout. And we've never really seen the Manson family given this kind of a treatment before because it's, I mean, it's obviously hotter than lava. I mean, it's pretty charged subject matter and how you go about putting this material on screen has got to be something you carefully consider for quite a while. And yeah, the, the first 80% of this movie I, I loved and the last 20%, I really enjoyed in the theater the first time I saw it. I was laughing my ass off. I couldn't believe the audaciousness of it, the brutality of it, 
because apparently, you know, it was like a fuse that had been lit at the mm-hmm. beginning of the movie, and it finally explodes in this this last set piece here. I was laughing my ass off, thought it was hilarious, and the more I the more I stood on the movie after I watched it, something about it just did not sit well with me, and I f- I only feel like he's done this revisionist history thing before, and. On the surface, I love the idea of him humanizing Sharon Tate in a way, like you said, where she's not just a statistic anymore. Mm-hmm. And we do get to remember her, at least in this movie, as a real person who had real aspirations and real dreams. And the revisionist history thing, I thought Inglorious Bastards did it first. And because it was a new thing, I don't care if he kills Hitler in that movie. I didn't I didn't see that's where it was going. I really loved it. It was kind of this quasi-comical, fantastical sense of catharsis that could only be lived out on a movie screen. It was an exclamation and, point in a movie <laughs> that it's already a great sentence. It was right, already just right. like, oh, I wasn't expecting that, but great. Okay, cool. Yeah. And the way it was even played off, it was just played off very... It was almost like so quick cut the way that it happened. You're like, oh, he did it. Okay, great. Bye. Yeah, so. he he tried something similar in Django, but obviously not with not with real characters. But where you know the the slave turns the the tide on the the slave owners and and bloody violence ensues. And because it was just kind of not uh, focusing on something that really happened with real people, it was kind of just more of another comic fantastical touch that I was okay with. But I don't. I couldn't get away from this nagging sense after the movie ended. And I really got to think about it that I feel like Tarantino has more to offer than this. Hmm. Um, I feel like the taking this story into the, the revisionist history angle. Again, I love that he gave Sharon Tate a real name and a real face for people who may not be familiar with her other than being a statistic. But I, I, I feel like this was an opportunity for Tarantino to take the next step in kind of a maturation behind the camera to show us something, maybe to go to some place that was a little dark and a little twisted. And for some reason, with this particular case that he has framed his story with, I felt like the the more adult and interesting and provocative thing to do would be, okay... You know, if your idea of this movie is kind of the death of the golden age of Hollywood, what better way to do it than to actually put the audience through this of what really happens? The all the you know the bloodshed and horror. Even reading about it, it makes me me shiver how how brutal this crime was. But I don't know if in the end that for me at least that was the right place to take the movie. And I, I feel like the first eighty percent is the work of a master director and the last 20% is more, I don't know, like a stunted adolescent or hmm. something like that. The, the violence just didn't really sit well with me the more I thought about it. And yeah, like I said, I'm still wrestling with it. Um, that's just why it, it, it was right there, but I, I, I just still can't bring myself to get on board with the last scene, the last scene or two. Well, what I would, what I would say to that is I think that he maybe has already Cross those bridges in his other films. So he's already done the fucked up things in, you know, nine, eight ninths of his other movies. So him showing a little bit of restraint. Not, not like this though. Like he hasn't, you don't think he, so? He, no, no. He hasn't taken a, like if I'm, what I'm saying, the, the, the alternate universe version of this movie mm-hmm. where the ending plays out exactly 
or in a matter of ways, how, how history has written that it's played out. For me, that would have been the, the leap for him to take in this movie, to actually go to a really serious place and what was otherwise a pretty grounded movie. You know, like it, it didn't have a lot of the stylish, stylistic flourishes we're used to seeing from him. Uh, so for me, it would have been a better thing if he, if he had the courage of the convictions of, of this story and putting it all on screen and actually making his point about the death of Hollywood by actually showing us what happened. I mean, the movie is kind of from a conservative viewpoint as, as it is, which I thought was pretty interesting. And there's a lament here, right? Like he's lamenting the death of the golden age of Hollywood. And in a lot of ways, history played that out exactly with the Manson murders. Like that was kind of where golden Hollywood died. Yeah. They you sh- know? The shock of it all. Sort yeah. Of, it it and, ripped the veneer off of this. Any, and, off yeah. Of anything. And I, I think the move to take this movie into the masterpiece that I thought it was building toward would be to take us there. But I think it's a different movie if he decides to do that. I think because he, if he were to portray Sharon Tate as she, as she was to then just violently murder her at the end, I don't think would, I think would have been a disservice to what he had done before then. So if she's just a footnote as she kind of is in history, I don't know if necessary, maybe you, you can't, you can't have one with the other. I feel like he, he does accomplish humanizing her though, just in what we get of her, in the movie, but like, then I think as, that, as it stands. But then I think that if he then just brutally murders her and her pregnant child, mm-hmm. it's or and her child, it'd just yeah. be like, well, that what was that for then? You know, I I don't feel like you would have needed to humanize her, it, and I don't know if it would have worked if you had that the first eighty percent, and mm-hmm. then he just goes and lops her off at the at the end. And you're sort of like, well, okay, well, you could, yeah, yeah, thing? you you would have to reframe some of her yeah. in, the, in the movie and give her more of a of a vocal presence than than we get in terms of just kind of seeing her go about her day and reacting to certain things and coming to grips with this yeah. newfound stardom that she was likely diving into, you know? Um, but I, yeah, I think for me, just, just a, di- I mean, this isn't the movie that we got. I'm just kind of projecting what I kind of wish it would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like most of this movie I completely loved and I thought it was a new fresh take on what Tarantino normally gives us. Uh, and, and yeah, just, uh, I'm still wrestling with it. All right. That's okay. We can disagree or we, we can, don't really disagree, see, but we're just, you know, we can, you know, respectfully disagree. And then in case of book spark, disrespectfully just <laughs> <Yeah>. disagree. <laughs> so Ryan, what's your number one? I have a confession. Oh no. Another confession. I lied to you. Oh no. Much like the family at the focus of this film, I ingratiated myself into your good graces and then pull the wool you over your son eyes. Son of a bitch. My number one is Parasite. Ah. <laughs> Did you plan that? No. No. But because you brought it up. Yeah. And I didn't want to talk about it because it was at the top of Mount Everest for me this year. Okay. I had to kind of wiggle my way into presuming that it did not make my list. Wow. You got me, though, because I would have no reason to not believe you. <laughs> so this movie is a film of impossible balance. Um, is it a suspense thriller? Is it a comedy? Is it a dramatic wedge of social commentary? Is it a horror film? The answer is of course, it's all of these things and somehow none of these things it's unclassifiable. It's got so much going on. Uh, it's the most masterful movie of the year that, again, is in a genre of its own and it is my bong hit. Mm. <laughs> uh, I've been a fan of all of his films going back to the host 
Mother is another great one if you haven't seen it. I think it's around 2010 that came out. Snowpiercer. Okja minus Jake Gyllenhaal's performance. <laughs> Bong Joon-ho's films are they're often very difficult to classify. And I think it really speaks to his artistry that none of the molds he's operating in feel like they're outside the piece. Hmm. Parasite tells this ingenious story. Again, you got into some of this, so I'll try not to tread over well-trodden ground here. But the ingenious story of a family of working-class Koreans that ingratiate themselves into a richer family surreptitiously one roll at a time. It's only when the whole family does a, a victory lap of some sorts to to celebrate this coup they've pulled off that things get kind of weird. Yeah, they get a little <laughs> bit hairy. Again, a movie that I would feel appalled if I spoiled for anybody. Foreign language film, it's not something t- typically people go out and rush out and see, so I'm going to try to be vague here, even though I would love to talk about it. I know. But it's a movie of so many pleasures. It's unpredictability, the brilliant plotting, the wittiness, the subtext here, the classist subtext that is very subtle in one ways and very blatant in other ways that kind of finally detonates the powder keg that's been building the whole movie. Uh, the nuances of small gestures and observations that, that partition one class from another. One of the most glaring omissions, I think his name is Song Kang Ho. He plays the father in the movie. Mm. This guy is in a lot of Bong Joon-ho's stuff. I think he was in The Host, was probably his other biggest role there. And he just has this everyman quality about him that you're just immediately on his side. And he's just trying to eke through life like everybody else is. He's got his family in this in this piece of shit subterranean basement home where he's got the dirty streets outside of him to look at every day. People pissing out of his window. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, the, Drunk people going to the bathroom yeah, right trying outside. Trying to eke out his existence, yeah. like you said, with putting together pizza boxes. Just, just anything that his family can do to squeak by. Um, I think I, I think I pondered this film's title for at least a week after I saw it because it operates on so many different layers. Who, what is the real parasitic relationship here in this movie? Cause the obvious one is, is definitely the family who's pulling one over, but there's also another parasitic relationship in this family or in this story, I should say that involves that kind of upstairs downstairs dynamic you were talking about. That is a rich motif that's repeated throughout the film pretty often that is all yeah it's also quite parasitic and and what of the rich family at the center of this how are how could they possibly be uh parasitic here i think they're a little more clean in this scenario because bong does a great job of making them not a despicable family and you know maybe they're a little entitled and they're wealthy they take things for granted that kind of thing but he doesn't make them out and out villains in my opinion and it gives the movie a real sense of balance where you're kind of not sure which characters you're supposed to be sympathizing with, which I found completely riveting. Uh, one of the most shocking moments of this year in cinema involves a certain kick mm. <laughs> uh, at a crucial part of the movie mm-hmm. that takes you through this roller coaster of emotions from hilarity to drama to horror in the span of about 10 seconds. And it's all pulled off beautifully from its inauspicious working class beginnings. It's uh, 
it's steadily increasing tension, the inevitable blood-soaked finale. This, this movie is just too much of a good time. It's the strongest film, I think, from a foreign market to come along in years that actually may have a legitimate crack at Best Picture. I don't think it's going to win because I don't think the Academy is that enlightened yet, but I think that if we're going from Roma last year to Parasite this year, I think the international market is giving us more reason than ever to finally coronate a foreign film at the top of Hollywood's year. Uh, let's see, God, what else? There's so much to talk about. But uh, if anybody out there just listening who hasn't quite you know, weaved the language barrier thing into their yearly cinematic adventures, I would really start with the work coming out of South Korea. It's brilliant. There are a lot of directors to choose from, including some that might show up in a certain decade list. Oh. Um, and in my mind, these guys are just setting the pace. So Parasite, the only movie this year that I had to really think about for top 20 of the decade. Uh, and I'll leave it at that. I mean, what more needs to be said? It's uh, And, and it, uh, I think it also, we touched on a little bit, it perfectly encapsulates the economic anxiety i think yeah. that we are pro- having in this country now and so it is crazy that a film from korea because i'd heard that because they don't ha- they don't really have quote unquote racism in the way that we see it here in america it's, it's like yeah it's classism classism that's what it is unfortunately we're dealing with all with both of them but <laughs> with them and there well, we, we also have an original sin that true they, that they probably don't true have. but in this case that yeah that there is so the the films that maybe would deal with a lot of racism in our country. There is a lot of stuff with classism and just this one just came out at the right time and it was made just so, so incredibly well. Um, yeah. Made 20 million at the domestic box office for a for, for, for a foreign film that might as well be 200 million because yeah. uh, they, they don't crack those barriers. Yeah. Um, so that was great. All another, right. Another year, Ryan. Another classic year. And guess what? We got so much more to go. So much more to come. Round two of the podcast doubleheader where we get into some serious shit. I mean, again, I'm terrified. I have to commit to my favorite 10 films of the decade in a matter of hours, and uh, history will judge. We'll see. Uh, we thank you for joining us. This has been the McShank Podcast. You can follow McCarran Podcast Network on Instagram and Twitter, MCE Podnet. Hope you'll catch us there. Lots of exciting things coming this year. I'm, I'm also on uh, on Letterboxd if anybody cares to see where I try, where I show my yearly cinematic uh, uh, outputs your day to day you're like your, g- give your my reviews, uh, right? g- give my canned thoughts uh, just to show you where where I'm going in a given year you can find me on Letterboxd and uh, do you have a screen name or do you have like yeah. a screen name what the fuck is it 1995 what's your do name I, on do, there do I have an avatar you have an avatar do you have a handle Clay R. Shank Clay R. Shank you can find that on Letterboxd that's really exciting mm-hmm. um, so yeah thanks so much for listening and we will catch you very soon thank you <laughs>